Welcome to the Bottom Line Up Front Podcast. I'm SIAC Ramon Colon Lopez, your fourth Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman today. This podcast is for facts, tough conversations, expert opinions, and best, getting to the bottom line up front. Our guest today is one of the pioneers of mixed martial arts fighting and has overcome a ton of adversity in his life. In 2003, he was one of two inaugural inductees into the Ultimate Fighting Championship Hall of Fame. It is with great honor and pride that I introduce today the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Ken, how are you doing today, brother? I'm good, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Well, you know, this is something that we discussed uh, a few weeks back, and I wanted to make sure that we got to know a little bit more about you, but most importantly, to just learn the parallels between your life in the Pentagon and for many of us, life on the battlefield, and some of the struggles that we face. We're going to have a very candid conversation, man. Nothing is off limits. So uh, we're just going to go ahead and press on with this, man. Are you ready? Let's do it. I, I feel like Big John McCarthy right now. Are you ready? Okay. All right, let's, let, let's get it on. All right, so a lot of people know your story. I mean, obviously, you're a legend in your profession, and a lot of us have been following you for a long, long time, and you have done a lot of great work over the years. But for those that are not that familiar with you, with Ken Shamrock, with the Lions Den, tell us a little bit about your life from your youth growing up to how you became a fighter. Yeah, and I'll go through it briefly. I don't want to go into detail, but just kind of give you a little bit of uh, the journey that I went through. I was born in Macon, Georgia, uh, 1964 uh, of February. Uh, I was born into a, a very um, unsettled home. Uh, my father, I didn't know until I was 40, 50 years old. I ended up finding out who he was. Um, my mother was raising three of us boys at the time by herself. Uh, in Georgia, we were in a very low poverty area, lots of fighting. We were left home a lot. We got into trouble. She met a guy that was in the Air Force, uh, loaded us up in a car. We moved to Napa, California, about, I would say, around, you know, eight, seven, eight years old. Uh, we end up going there, which is a whole different culture, getting in fights because of the way I talked, the way I dressed, how I acted. We weren't raised very well. We were in a middle class uh, area. So very quickly, I ended up into the system, the group home system, where I went from group home to group home, um, strong arm robbery, um, got stabbed at a very young age. Um, and then I became a ward of the court um, at 10, in and out of group homes, failed, I don't know, four or five different group homes, end up at the Shamrock Boys Home. Um, and that's really where I started to get an education on who I was, I got to get learn some outlets to be able to vent my frustration. Uh, I became relevant uh, in the world through sports because of some guidance there, which I never got in other group homes. Uh, and then I went into college, which I never thought I would ever do because I thought I'd be dead or in prison before I even got to high school. Um, and so it was a real, real uh, eye, eye opener. But at the same time, the problem comes in when you're growing up like that and you get a shot to do the right thing. We don't always make those decisions or those good choices because we're so used to making bad choices. So even though I had structure and somebody was leading me in the right direction, I still fought that structure. I fought that right and wrong because it was easier to do wrong than it was to do right. And uh, unfortunately, that's in most cases as a kid, it's easier just not to not to want to do the right thing because it takes a lot of work. Um, but in the long run, as you learn, as we get older, um, you end up in a better place and the less work that you have to do by doing the right things in the beginning. And it becomes much easier life. But of course, we don't know that in the beginning. So there was a lot of struggle. There's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of trouble. I end up making it, uh, end up going over to Japan, finding my abilities as a professional fighter, um, led into, you know, the Pancrase organization, uh, led into the UFC, and uh, of course the WWF. And all of those transitions, I was constantly battling the um, right and wrong 
because it was built into me at a young age. It was always there. It's like a drug addict, right? Once you're a drug addict, you're always a drug addict. You're always going to think you can just do one and then walk away. Uh, and we all know that's not true when you're a drug addict. You do one and you're stuck. And it's the same thing when you're used to doing wrong and used to breaking the law and used to being a rebel. And no matter how old you get, you still have that DNA, that, that thing that always wants you to go back to that rebel side. And so that's what I was fighting my whole time as a professional athlete, because now I had money and now I was popular and now everybody would give me everything for free, men, women, drugs, alcohol, you know, getting in the line first at concert, everything was, was handed to me. And that's a very, very difficult type of position to be in when you come from poverty, because you're, you're now in this position to where you thought where you started from now, everything is just so easy. And you don't realize that that easy uh, ends up bringing you down. So um, I'd like to leave it there because I know that we'll we'll dissect um, all of these different areas as we get uh, deeper into this podcast. No, yeah, and uh, thank you for that for that quick rundown because it actually leads us into really what we want to talk about. And again, just focusing on the parallels. So I too was made fun of because of the way that I talk. Uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico, got into a lot of fights. Uh, when I moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I was getting into fights too because I didn't look the part. I was in the inner city as a Puerto Rican teenager, but I didn't dress the part. I dressed like a surfer because I came from Puerto Rico and I was called Puerto Rican white boy and that created fights and everything else. But little did we know that those were just the prep grounds for what we were to do later on in life. So again, there's always a good lesson learned in every adverse situation that we put ourselves on. So, and for me, much like you, you know, you found, started finding your purpose at the Shamrock uh, Home for Boys. For me, I joined the service just to do that, to find my purpose and to gain my independence from a lot of the things that I have been exposed through my life. And uh, I did find that, you know, and it ended up showing me not only how to be a good citizen, how to turn failures into successes, but also to realize and appreciate the payoff of actually doing good for others. So ended up uh, getting motivated to just continue that track over the years and, you know, finally found a place that I could call a home. And that was uh, military service. By the way, those Air Force guys, yeah, you got to keep an eye on them because uh, you just never know what you're going to get with them. But, uh, man, uh, on the subject of finding purpose, Ken, uh, tell us a little bit about your feelings when you first got into the Shamrock Home for Boys. Did you feel like you belonged there? Well, see, uh, I, and I got to go back a little bit in order to tell that story because yeah. – um, when, when I had gotten stabbed uh, behind 7-Eleven, ended up in the hospital, and uh, I was handcuffed to a bed. Uh, so that's when I started into the process. The court now became my parents. I was taken away from my home, which wasn't much of one, right? I mean, we were rebels, and we weren't doing anything right. So we were pulled out of there, and um, I ended up going all to these other placements. And these other placements were basically just people that came in on shifts, eight-hour shifts. They were called house parents. And then they would go home and another pair of house parents would come in and, and there was like five or six boys in a, in a home and the homes were tore up. They were, they were horrible. Cause you know, there's a constant turnover with kids coming in and they're not kids that know how to take care of themselves. They tear everything up. And so I run away from those places because I just didn't feel like there was anything there. Unconsciously in my mind, I knew that this is just, just a, this, is a, this is a dead end. And so I'd run. And every same time I ran, I'd get in more trouble. I'd be put in juvenile hall. Um, and then I'd go to another place and then I would run from there. But when I ended up at the Shamrock Boys Home, it was a funny feeling because here I was running from all these homes that were just dumps. And yet I was driving into this mansion and it had the big oak doors, pool table, video games, had this bar with candy and soda and ice cream. And I mean, it was like Disneyland when you walked into this place compared to what I was used to. And uh, I remember Bob Shamrock, uh, who was the, the guy that owned the home, who later became my dad, was like there. That was his home. And this thing was, it was a, a big old white piano and uh, 18 foot open beam ceilings. I mean, it was just beautiful. It was a mansion, right? I mean, it was just, I mean, I'm thinking we're in the wrong place. But here's, <laughs> a, 
But but here's the thing, and I think anybody that comes from where I'm coming from will truly understand what I'm saying. When I walked into this place, I knew this is what where I could. I knew this wasn't a place for me. I did not feel comfortable here. The only thing I could think of is what I could steal because there was so much there was so much value in this house, and there was so many things in there that was valuable that I could have stole. And that's all I thought about because I was saying I'm not going to wear a tie at dinner and. You know, there's just something not right here. There's no way we're here because we did good things, right? We're the worst of the worst. So why are we getting into this home? Like, this is place of mansion. There's something wrong. And so, you know, you're on the defensive going into this place. And, you know, it was, it probably was probably about a, a six weeks in uh, where I realized that, wait a minute, you know, let me, I want to stick around. I want to see how this thing ends because it was, it, we didn't have uh, house parents coming in on shifts to where they didn't know what was going on. We weren't a number on the board where you earned a star, you know, for a day. Uh, you know, it was normal life, like go to school, come home, do chores, eat dinner, play sports, uh, watch TV. You know, it was a home setting. And it was like really odd that we all ate together. There was 18 boys and there was at least, what, six staff, uh, including the house parents. So, you know, anyways, from 21 to 24 people at dinner, and it was a big oak table with pewter goblets and real silverware and linen napkins teaching us how to eat right with the salad bowl. And it was like, you know, and we're, and we're just like, there's like, how is this really possible? You're trying to pinch yourself, waiting for the other foot to fall, like, ah, just a kidding, you're going somewhere else. And so, but if there was no house parents, it was him. And it was actually uh, conducted like a regular family. And so, yeah, I stuck around for a while. Um, we actually did fights out in the backyard of guys that got into beefs and they both guys wanted to fight. We got to go out back and, and settle our differences where there's no way they let you do that in other places. But most of the time, the majority of the time after the fights were over, both guys were cool. One had to submit. Once that one submitted, then they could be friends because they both, both guys weren't used to not having the, being the tough guy, right? Like people being afraid of him because this was the hardest of the hardest. So once one guy beat the other guy, the other guy knew it. There was that submissive thing that goes on in the animal kingdom, right? Like there's no more confrontation anymore. This guy knows that he got beat up and therefore we can be friends now. And it was just a weird dynamic, but it was so real, so true. And uh, the house ran really well, man. And I tell you, uh, it was probably maybe my, my probably three, four months in, uh, my father asked if I wanted to play football or, or Sham, Bob Sham, I was my dad. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't know, really know how to play street ball and all that stuff, but, but, uh, yeah. so he actually started and he knew what he was doing because he knew that he had to direct my anger into something positive to where I was getting praise for being violent. And praise for being out of control within the rules, going crazy. And I became, uh, you know, within three years in that school, I became relevant. Now I wasn't this punk kid that was going to die and go to prison, whatever, whatever came first, right? All of a sudden, I was relevant. Coaches wanted to help me. I was dating a cheerleader. I mean, this was, I was the hardest of the hardest at 10 years old. And now all of a sudden, I'm 16, 17 years old. And now all of a sudden, I'm relevant. I became important and it was all because I found a direction and something that I was good at and people recognized me for that. And what a, what a great story there. And uh, I am so glad that you ended up uh, running into Mr. Shamrock at that time to be able to go ahead and help you channel that and uh, have the man that we have in front of us today. But uh, what I got from that bit in there, that is all about breaking the habits, you know, getting out of the hole and finally figure out, man, there's another way, probably a better way for us to exist. And you mentioned the fights out back. And I was laughing because in our team room in special operations, you know, we call it putting on the gloves. You go up to the team bar, you know, you settle your differences, then you hug it out afterwards, you know. But uh, it works, man. It, it, it's something that works. But uh, you mentioned football, playing football. And I remember two times in my youth, Ken, once I was mugged at gunpoint for a coat in the streets of Bridgeport. 
The other one, I left the house because my parents were in a, in a physical altercation and I got my ass kicked in a, in a park, you know, jumped by a couple of other dudes, got mugged again. And I just remember feeling uh, uh, helpless at the time. I was like, man, why didn't I fight hard or anything else? So I had this fire inside of me to be able to go ahead and channel that violence. And man, wishing that I had another do-over to go ahead and, and make sure that the outcome of the situation was different. But that is uh, what I learned when I first got into pararescue because that provided me an opportunity to be able to go ahead and uh, redeem myself when it came to doing something and using the violence that I have been exposed to for good. Now, football for you was almost an, a career ender when it came to contact sports. Tell us what happened when you were 17 years old. Yeah, it wasn't football. Um, I had actually wrestled in high school and football, and I had just finished up my senior year in football. I had some scholarships, uh, but I still had my wrestling season. And mm. uh, I had a very promising junior year where I went to sections, uh, and I think I only got beat like two or three times my, my sophomore year. Uh, my, my, my senior year when I was going in there, I had actually beat two state champions in Nevada, and I uh, was undefeated that year. And going into the, towards the end of the season, um, I was actually pegged to go to state and I ended up going into practice and then I went to shoot on a guy and I ended up slipping and fell on me and he broke my neck. And I remember laying there, um, you know, on the mat uh, thinking to myself as the coach is yelling me to get up, get up, get up. And I'm thinking, I'm getting up, I'm getting up, but I ain't moving. And wow. it was probably, probably about three seconds or so where I realized there was something wrong. Like I couldn't move. And I remember the coaches were screaming. And then after about three seconds, we think we all kind of figured out there was something wrong because they all started to back up because I was just laying there and I, I, I couldn't move. And so I remember the coaches immediately, you see, start seeing the panic. And uh, it was probably 30 minutes after the fact I was in a ambulance uh, they came in and put me in this Star Wars board. I think that's what it's called. Where they clamp you together. And they took me out in the uh, ambulance and they took me two two hours, two and a half hours away into Redding, California, where I went to a specialist, a doctor for a neck, and they did X-rays. And I remembered uh, because I was in the hospital and and I, I remember they had me in this bed where they were flipping me. I had this hole cut out when I go on my face, and then they flipped me and I'd have mirrors and different things, watch TV, but probably three days in there. I remember they came to me and, and Bob Shamrock was in there with me. And I remember they told me something. They go, you broke your neck, right? They did the x-rays and they assumed something like that because of the, but it could have been a pinch or something was real. I don't, I, I, except so far along, I just know that there was, there was still hope, right? Um, until that third day when they came in and said, you broke your neck. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, you know, all right. So, hey, Doc, how long? How long? He was like, "What do you mean?" I go, "How long before, before I'm healed that I can get back out on the football field and wrestle?" I mean, I got scholarships, man. I mean, I'm, this is my head. Like, I earned this. <laughs> I mean, I I did everything right. So, the, you know, it can't be over now. And I'm thinking, so when? Like, how long is it going to take for me to heal? Now, I remember he just kind of shook his head, like, like, because I he's probably thinking, doesn't he? I just told this kid he broke his neck. Right? <laughs> And he wants to go back out, right? But but my mind wasn't accepting the fact that that okay, I broke my neck, but this is not the end. It can't be, right? I mean, it can't be not from what I've gone through, and not I know this is my purpose. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, this brought me everything in my life, and so I wasn't registering it. And I remember the doctor kind of just walked out, and and uh, I, my dad, I remember went. It was talked to doctor and, and uh, he showed us the x-rays and, and it, it was pretty, pretty weird to see it. But um, I remember he pulled my dad aside and he was just talking to him say, Hey, you know, you, you need to make sure he understands what, what he, what's going to happen here. And so I remember that they came in and started talking to me again and tried, cause like I said, I, I didn't quite get it. I, or I didn't want to get it. And they were explaining to me that, listen, you're, you're going to have to think of something else to do. I mean, we've got to go in and do surgery. we got to take a bone chip out of your hip, which is what they did back then in, in 82. Um, and you're going to fuse it in your neck. And, you know, that's you, you're not going to be able to have contact. Uh, and I was like, 
immediately I got depressed. I was like, this can't be like, you're telling me that I can't play any sports. Like you're, you're, that's not, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't have anything else. I don't know anything else. It's like, this is what I've got. This is what I've been given. This is God gifted talent. You're telling me I don't have it anymore. And I remember getting depressed and I remember my father said this, and I use this a lot because I, I think this is something that has driven me my whole life was this one point in time in my life where they had said to me, you know, you can't play contact sports anymore. And my father says to me, he goes, after he sees me getting depressed and he goes, you know, you can lay there and pout or you can get up and do something about it. And I remember thinking to myself, because, you know, when you say that, sometimes people take it wrong, but, you know, uh, there was a, there was a guidance there for me. Right. And I knew it. Like I had an understanding of what he was saying to me, not what he meant, but what it meant to me. And what it meant to me was like, he's right. My dad, my dad is where Bob Shabbat's right. He says, how can this guy, come in and tell me that I'm done. Like I can't do the things that I was made to do. I said, he doesn't know who I am or what I can do or what I'm willing to do to get to where it is. I want to go. This guy doesn't know me. Like he has no idea what I can do or what I want to do and the desire that I have to do it. And so I remember uh, getting out of the hospital. It was a while went through therapy. I had this halo on and, uh, tore the halo out of my head a couple of times because I, I couldn't settle down. Um, I trained with it on. And then I remember I got it off and my head was off balance and I had to go through lots of therapy to get balance back. And I lost a lot of weight and this was my senior year. And I no nobody would touch me. I mean, in about a year and a half, I put back on more weight. I put on 20 pounds more than what I weighed when I originally broke my neck, I came back stronger. I had more discipline, more desire, more of a focus. And I remember I had to walk onto a junior college at Shasta college uh, and, and have a, and have a doctor. Basically I had to, had to release any or all um, any, any of that, that would be responsible for them, that I would release all of that, that I just wanted to play. And I got a shot at the Shasta college to play. And, and my first year, I killed it. Second year, killed it. But no university would touch me. No university would touch me. Even though I was willing to go on it, they just wouldn't do it. Even though I was good enough. Uh, end up having a tryout with the Chargers. And around that same time, I end up getting an opportunity to do pro wrestling. Uh, and so I did pro wrestling for a while. Uh, did really well at it. And then ended up finding this thing called UWF, which was what we called hybrid wrestling. And so I started doing that tremendous, lots of striking, lots of kicks. Uh, the finish was predetermined, but it was still pretty aggressive in the beginning. Uh, and then had the opportunity to go from there because me and two of my buddies, Suzuki and Fanaki, wanted to know what it would be like if we made wrestling or this hybrid wrestling real. It's like, well, what if we could just say, hey, whoever wins, the right guy wins. There's no predetermined inning. Well, how would it look? So we developed Pancras. Pancras came out because of that idea. And then, of course, I became the first world champion. And then from there, the UFC came out, and I wanted to challenge myself even more because this was bare knuckle like a street fight with no rules. Anything goes and no time limit. It was <laughs> certain level, right? And so I went there. I had some letdown. I won my one, first one. I lost my second one. It was devastating because I was a champion. So I came back. I redeemed myself. And then I came back and, bent and, and ended up being the world champion. And uh, I want you to think about that road, that road that I traveled at any point in time. It was never a thought in my head, a concern. And I know people go, well, you never worried about it? I never thought about it. It was never a thought. Like it was, it was so far behind me that I never thought about it. And people go, that's crazy, there's no way. It's the truth. I never thought about it because I was so focused on where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do that I didn't think about what would be able to stop me or what can't stop me because I, my heart, nothing could stop me. And therefore I focused on the goal. And that's what I did. And I ended up, you know, you saw that journey that I took. There was not one time where I ever doubted that I was going to be a world champion. 
Yeah, and it is, it is that desire and, you know, the fire that was in you all the way because of the people that told you no, that kept, you know, motivating you and driving you to go ahead and do something different and overcome those things. And a lot of us, a lot of us see that. And I get, I get to see it now in my current position as a senior enlisted advisor to the chairman every time I go to Walter Reed and I see the young men and women that are wounded over there. All they want to do is get back on the line. I mean, they're fighting every day to just go ahead and get after that goal. And uh, man, it will, be, it will bring a tear to anyone's eyes when you get to see him. And also- I was there at Walter Reed. I got to go there and visit, I believe it was the fourth floor. And uh, there was a lot of these guys that came back that were severely, severely wounded. And uh, that was one thing when I was talking to them, the one thing they kept mentioning was that they felt like they let their buddies down. I was like, yeah. dude, I was like, man, get, take care of yourself. <laughs> better and then worry about that like like focus on you right now you've you've given everything you can give at this point right now focus on you you know get yourself better and then see where you could go from there well Ken I'll tell you that after you know now that we're drawing down the longest war in American history uh, a lot of these young men and women are going to be figuring out exactly you know man was it all worth it and man damn well damn right it, it was you know, especially the relationships we build and the way that we live today is something critical for every single one of them. And we have to make sure that they do not forget that. Um, you mentioned also that, you know, after you decided that, man, football wasn't going to be it because you were not given opportunities, you chose to open your own doors. And that's when you created, you know, your, your group for wrestling and then you got into MMA. Now, I still remember the first time I saw you, and I was going through Combat Diver School in Key West, Florida. And we used to go to this little bar to blow off steam. It's called The Hideaway. And at The Hideaway, you had a whole bunch of operators that would get out there and just watch the reruns of the fights. And I remember those were brutal back in the days, man. You're talking about no rules? There were no rules. But man, you got us in trouble quite a bit when we were out there because you were a motivator back in the days, man. So tell us a little bit about your first uh, few years in the Ultimate Fighting Championship uh, rounds. Yeah, after I uh, captured the championship over in Japan, um, and, and uh, listen, that gave me my ability to be successful in the UFC because it forced me to be well-rounded in grappling and stand-up because they forced those issues because of the rule sets. Well, in the UFC at the time, there was people came in with one discipline, they were either a wrestler or a judo guy or a brown guy, or they were a striker, uh, where I was the first one that came in with the ability to do both. And yeah. so it was an exciting time for me because where I came from, you know, it was it was extreme. I mean, I was getting jumped. I was fighting four people at one time. I was getting stabbed, you know, even shot at. So here I go into this thing now where I'm in Pancras, I'm fighting, there's rules and everything, and it's all cool. I get to kind of take that anger to another level and to become a world champion and then all of a sudden i see this other thing which i didn't believe was going to happen in the first place i was like there's no way they're going to be able to do that well when i get there we go through all this stuff we do the fight well it it, 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 you, it you can do it because the very first fight of the night was gerard godot and a sumo wrestler oh my gosh you want to talk about <laughs> <laughs> if you want to ever put a fight on that literally legitimize what we were about to get into. If it would have been me and Hoist in the first match, people would have been booing because they would have, they didn't, right? They're like, why are you guys doing it? What are you doing? They don't know that stuff, right? So to have that fight first, you know, that was something that you know was set because uh, if any other fight would have been on there, Art Jimerson or, or, or me and Patrick Smith because they booed when I beat him because they didn't know what I did. But to have Gerard Bideau kick a guy in the face while he was on the ground in the very first fight literally told people, whoa, this is legit, man. It told everybody in the locker room, yeah, we all just walked into a buzzsaw and didn't realize that they were going to turn it on. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and turn it on, they did, man. I mean, I remember you just like, man, that little guy's going against that big dude. We're like, oh, this is going to be interesting, man. But you definitely, you definitely held your own in there, man. And with that came a lot of success, Ken. Um, you clearly established yourself as one of the best, you know, one of the most watched in the, in the circuit. But uh, were there any events in the process of getting that fame 
as a highly successful fighter. By the way, we're, we're comparing lives over here, you know, between yours and mine. And for the record, I have to say, I never gotten any free anything, man. You know, so uh, you, you definitely got, uh, got a leg up on that one. But tell us about the events that started uh, the downward spiral, uh, how fame affected you and success affected you. Yeah, you know, and it's a slow, gradual process for some. Sometimes others, it just comes right on them real fast. But it's it's a drug. It's just another drug that that is just, it's one that it's a sleeper. Most people don't even hear about it, right? Don't even know about it unless you go through it. And it's called it's called power. It's called money and power. And uh, you hear people talk about it, but unless you actually go through it, you really don't understand it. And it's it's a really weird sense because especially when you come from uh, a poverty and you don't have a whole lot, then all of a sudden you get your, my first check was for $30,000. It was handed to me in three stacks of $10,000. And I thought I was rich and, you know, after taxes and, and, you know, that was for a year. That wasn't one fight. Um, <laughs> that was the first one. And that's how they tricked me. Like they hand me this money in three stacks. You're like, Whoa, there's a lot. And then you <laughs> I'm broke in six months, right? It's like, well, how did that all go so fast? Because you're not used to it, right? So then I, I, of course, I was winning and I got better and better. And then, of course, my checks went way up. I started making money. In fact, I couldn't even take them. They had to be deposited into the bank. So it was, it, it was, I mean, I'm trying to put myself back there. It was almost like you feel uh, invincible. You feel like rules don't apply to you. You feel like you walk up to a club, they should know you. And that if you have to stand in line, how dare them? How dare them? They should know who I am. Why do I have to stand in line? You know, and when, when you're used to that, I mean, you think back when you first, you were just happy to get in and have fun. And now it's all of a sudden you you feel like you're owed something. And uh, and that gets you into trouble because they're not everybody's going to know who you are. And even if they do, some of them are not going to give you that privilege. You know, they're going to, they're going to do things that are not what you feel you should deserve. And then when you get money, it's, it's hard to balance that because you don't, you don't feel like the money's ever going to run out. You'll just do another fight uh, and you'll do another appearance. And, um, and so you find out, you know, as you're going through this, you start finding out that it isn't, the reality that you you think that you're seeing isn't isn't true. It's not there. It's not real. It's all all of it's fake. Everything that is around you isn't real because you put yourself in a position to where you felt like none of these things apply to you, but they do. Taxes apply to you. Uh, bills apply to you. Raising children apply to you. Uh, having a relationship with the wife applies to you. These are all things that when you start rolling in that direction, that you start taking for granted. Going to your kids' dance rehearsals, going to your kids' you know football games and wrestling uh, tournaments, and being at birthday parties—these all things that apply to you. And so all these things you start taking for granted. And then you know, as you—and I think it was probably the middle of my career uh, where I started feeling hurt, like because. I didn't feel like I, I was connected to my kids. I didn't feel like I was connected to what was going on. And I started feeling like I wasn't home enough. And this is when I was actually through the UFC and also into pro wrestling. It was when I was actually in pro wrestling is when I started to feel like I, I was doing, this was wrong. This, this, is, this, this is not where I should be. This is not how my life should be. Um, I'd already gone through a divorce. You know, my kids... I'd come back, they'd stay with me, but it was almost like I was just visiting them and, and that I wasn't really their parent. And that's when I made a decision that I was going to get off the road. Like I need to get off. There was a lot of other stuff that went on besides that, uh, that I, that I don't want to go into details on, which had to do with business and with that company and stuff that had happened, uh, with different stuff in wrestling that I felt uncomfortable with, but it was a lot of the stuff that just built up and, I think all the stuff that happened kind of made me realize that, wait a minute, you know, all the stuff that got you here, all the stuff that was important to you uh, when you got here is now all of a sudden not important to you. And that is a dangerous place to be because you're going to be, uh, and I, I was lonely. I felt like I was losing everything that I cherished and I had to make some changes. And that's when I got off the road in wrestling. Uh, I took some time, a whole year, 
uh, I didn't do anything to be able to try to fix what I broke. Yeah, and I think that that's pretty important because you know that when the travel ends, there's uh, the, the few people in your life that matter the most, and that's often our families. And I will tell you, Ken, you mentioned fame as a drug. In our community, combat is the drug. And there were many guys that were going forward day after day, mission after mission. And when they will come home and they'll, they will face the adversity of the home life, the first thing that they will ask for is like, deploy me again. I need to get the hell out of here. Because they were happier than there. Just basically, you know, running missions every day. And uh, life wasn't really all that important to them back home. And that, uh, that became pretty dangerous for a lot of them because a lot of them didn't quite understand that while they were out for 90, 120 days, six months, the families were going on with life as we used to know it. And all of those little things will amount up and man, kids getting sick, kids having to go to school, groceries, having to go ahead and pick this up. We had to have dinner ready. You know, we have a soccer game and everything else. And when the operator will get back home, it will be like, Quit your whining, you know, do you know where I have been, what I've been doing every day out there? So again, there was a, a, a dichotomy of importance in life, and it's, it's equally dangerous for, for all of us, you know. But I mentioned the families and humility being the key in Dugan, you know, the do you know who I am type syndrome. And for me, it's always been Janet. You know, my, my wife Janet has always been there as a, as a you know, deflator. Of, uh, of different things. And re I rely on her daily. So you mentioned about your family that you decided to take the time off, you know, deal, dealing with injuries, divorce, and everything else. So what was the key thing that you ended up doing with your family after you took that year off? What was the change you made? Well, first of all, I think that the, the biggest thing was getting back to me, uh, finding out the, the Ken Shamrock that started the whole journey the hungry, the, the respectful, the hardworking, uh, loving, caring individual that started the journey. Because after a while, I became numb uh, to, to caring for people, even though I still uh, appreciated my fans and I was always there, but there was no deep, deep uh, connection or love to, what, to who I was, to, to who I was when I started out. And it just got to a certain point in my career where I just felt like I was numb, like I was in this, this world where I was repeating the same thing every day, every day, every day. And there was, I didn't know who I was. I didn't, I was doing drugs. I was drinking. I was with women, uh, you know, and it was just this fast roller coaster. I couldn't get off. And the first thing I had to do was stop it. I had to stop it. In other words, stop doing what I was doing, wrestling or fighting, whatever I was doing. I had to stop. I had to get off. And I had to regroup and get back to who, know who Ken Shamrock was. Who was I? Where, how did I get to where I was at? Get back to that guy because that's who I'm going to be when it's all said and done. And if I don't stop, then I'm going to become something I don't like and that everybody around me is not going to like. So I had to stop it. I had to take a moment, regroup, find out who I was so that I could get back to who I, the journey that I was going in the first place to accomplish goals. But it wasn't the goals that I was accomplishing in that moment. I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. So I had to stop everything, get off that roller coaster and regroup and go, Ken, what was your focus back then? And my focus back then was to have a career. And, and as I got in the middle of it, I wanted to be the greatest. And when you're doing those things, then you have to make sure you understand how what it takes to be that. But at the same time, you can't forget the people around you that support you and help you to be great because you don't do it on your own. It takes a village be able to have somebody like myself and to achieve the things that I have achieved. It's not done alone. It's done through family. The wife's got to be supportive. The children has got to understand and you've got to put time into them so they, they truly do understand that you love them and you're there for them when you can be. Spending time with them when you have that chance. Not going out and doing things when you're home because you just want to get away. Uh, really forcing yourself to be that person that you were meant to be because you got those kids. You were meant to be their father. You got a wife. You were meant to be that husband. 
and making sure you understand that those are the things that you have to do when you're not training and when you're not accomplishing a goal. Yeah, and it sounds that in that period, when you started being more introspective, you ended up striking a balance in there of what was most important to you. But shortly after that came retirement from MMA. How did you feel at the point to where you knew you were no longer going to get in the octagon? By the way, I called it the Pentagon earlier because they're both equally painful. I will tell you that right now. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, now, now you're, you're outside of the octagon. Uh, you're back with your family and you're no longer around the people that used to be your tribe. How did that feel? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's comparable to um, the military when you're seeing action. Obviously, the risks are a lot higher, no question. But the adrenaline is, is jacked when you're walking out in front of 60,000 people and they're screaming your name. And when you got reporters running to, to interview you and scrambling around to get close to you, you got fans that are scrambling around and want your autograph. And all of these things are just such an adrenaline, right? It's such a, a rush. And when the smoke clears, it's quiet. And then you got to go back home. And you don't have that, that, that rush anymore. You don't have that adrenaline flood anymore. And so you start thinking about other things like, hey, I'm going to go out and have a few drinks or, or I'm going to go out and do a line or I'm going to go out and have sex with some other girl uh, because you feel lonely you feel something's missing you can't seem to get that high again and so you start doing things that you don't that you feel uh might give you some sort of adrenaline lift or or something that will be exciting um you know and unfortunately uh it it doesn't compare and in fact it ruins everything and you end up in a much worse place i've always told people um especially fighters who have have asked me, you know, how do you fill that, that void? And I said, you know, find something that you love doing. You know, you got to make sure that you spend time with your family, make that a priority. And then find something that you love doing, whether it's golf, uh, whether it's, you know, going to church and worshiping, um, you know, find a lot of things that you like doing, uh, hiking, you know, riding my bikes, something that's educational and also recreational. Um, so is that you're at least, you're not going to ever feel it, but so at least you're taking up your time that you're not just sitting around and then all of a sudden, you know, you start thinking about things you shouldn't be doing. So that's something that I think has really put me in a really good position and really been able to have the life that I have now after, after fighting and, and very exciting is, is that I started focusing on the things outside the ring. Um, and you know, I lift weights, you know, I, I do, I go to my kids games, my grandkids games, you know, I try to stay busy in everything, every aspect of life when it comes to my family and my grandkids and kids, I stay involved with, whether we travel for a birthday or we do something like that, because that's taking time. And I, and, it, and I love being there. I love being around it. Um, but there's also those downtimes when there's nothing else going on, you know, and therefore I started a podcast. You know, so that I'm able to talk about like stuff like this or be able to help other people uh, deal with different things or just li listening fans to tell me how important it was in their lives when they were going through hard times and being able to talk with them and have fun, being able to appreciate things that that I had done for them and that maybe that they've done for me and being able to support me and stuff. So it's really about just being involved and staying involved in things that you could build around you that you like. Now, extremely important, too, but, you know, I would like to go back to the comment you made about risk in the military versus risk at the, oct risk at, at the uh, octagon. And I will tell you, Ken, I never ran away from the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or anybody else. But if I would have seen Tank Abbott coming after me, I would have been booking. All right. So let's just make sure that we get that in there. 
But hey, you, you talked, uh, you mentioned something really important about filling the gap, you know, that adrenaline that you used to get. And I'm going to use myself, myself as an example. The reason we didn't do this podcast sooner is because not many people know about this, but I just ended up going undergoing four weeks of treatment and the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, uh, multiple TBIs operational, but the very last one that I ended up uh, receiving was trying to cover that gap, that adrenaline gap. And I started riding bicycles downhill. And basically that was the thrill that got me going. And I ended up spending five days in a German hospital because I ended up having a bad, bad crash. And the wife, once again, comes to the rescue and says, hey, you know, this is your ultimatum. You either tone it down or you got to fix yourself, you know, because working on ourselves is probably one of the most important things that we can do before we start helping other people. And that is kind of your philosophy. You, you always talk about your purpose, about being successful in order to build something with the purpose of helping others. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, and I, I've, I've said this, and, and I think this is a message that most people have to understand is that you have to be successful yourself. You have to be confident in yourself. and You've got to be comfortable within yourself in order to help other people. Um, because let's face it, if somebody's a, a, a bum on the street that hasn't done anything and then is given advice, would you listen? I mean, there's <laughs> probably not a good chance you would because yeah. they haven't done anything. And I think that's in life too. I think that, you know, the, 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 the best thing that I could do in order to help people. And I, I, this is something I've always wanted to do, even with at-risk kids. I've, I've spent my whole career giving back to at-risk kids is that there's no way you're able to be successful at a very high level and be able to help so many out there unless you put yourself in a position to do that. And so I hear people sometimes talking about, well, you're just thinking to yourself, or well, you just, you, you're just famous and, and you don't understand. And it's like, no, I do understand. I was there. I said, I put myself in this position so as I could turn around and have the leverage to be able to help other people and to be able to help not just uh, other people, but a lot of other people. And so I use that leverage and I use that fame to be able to have that, that first step in being able to speak with some of these kids that normally wouldn't listen to anybody. Yeah, and that you have done really well. And, you know, you have done that basically based on your reputation, your credibility, and how genuine you are when you come across people. Because the first time we spoke, I was just like, wow, this is going to be a great conversation because you're just a really down-to-earth guy, man. And uh, we really appreciate that. Um, during our last conversation, you also mentioned physical fitness. And by the way, I would like to say that if I knew you were going to be wearing that T-shirt, I would have done curls and put one of my wife's T-shirt on to be able to match because I feel uh, pretty inadequate right now. But you're, you're definitely big into uh, PT, uh, physical training. But tell us, what is your, your philosophy or your routine for staying mentally fit? Yeah, you know, and again, I think it, it makes sure you're listening when I'm talking to everybody out there. Uh, understand your body, because I know people look at me and they go, dude, man, you train all the, every day. And it's like, no, I don't. I train probably every three days, maybe sometimes every four days, because I listen to my body. If I'm sore, I wait till my body's not sore anymore. And then I'll go train my other body part. Now, when I was younger, yeah, I train every day. In fact, I do boxing. I would do grappling and I would lift weights all in one day. And the next day I could go again, but my body recovered fast then. Now I'm 57 years old. My body doesn't recover like it used to be. So therefore the only, the only way that I'm able to get the maximum out of my body is making sure that it gets the rest. And some people are different. Some people maybe 57 years old will be able to train every other day or every Every day, you know, taking a weekend off. I, I, everybody's body's different. That's why I'm saying just because I'm saying something in the way that, that I train doesn't mean that you do. Because like I said, I train every, probably every three days I'll train just to give my body a chance to rest because I've beat it up for so long that it doesn't have the ability to recover and, and, uh, and me be able to come back and, and like train one day, take one day off and then train it. Oh, I may have to train one day, take two days off and then train again. But again, it varies. And, I, and I'm so in tune with my body that I can tell, okay, I can train again today because I don't feel as sore as I would have been. 
So it is, it's really about getting to know your body, staying in tune with your body and having, and as you get older, make sure you understand that rest is the most, the diet and rest is the most important thing to you being able to have success in staying fit. Very, very important because most people are negligent thinking that they're going to put the reps at the gym and then just basically feed themselves with junk all day and think that they're going to get the results that uh, they see out there with professionals like you. But you have a lot of great lessons to learn when it comes to combat uh, skills, you know, hand-to-hand and many other uh, skills that you have actually demonstrated throughout your life. And you have done extensive work with the military, specifically with the Marine Corps, most recently with the Army at Fort Polk. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them? Yeah, you know, it's something that I, I said I was going to do a long time ago because I've always had the utmost respect for individuals that have taken a choice, a choice in their life to give up all of their personal beliefs, all their personal thoughts and join the military and be able to be retrained and to understand why they're in the military because they can't go home to mom and, and on Thanksgiving. Sometimes they can, but they're basically sacrificing their way of life to be able to do something in the military to protect others. Uh, I have always, I've always admired that and respected that. And it's something that I have been doing for many, many years. Ever since I started fighting, the first thing I did was be, uh, had the opportunity to work with the military, different branches. I've been doing it probably now for 20 years, uh, working with different branches. And it's always been something that I've enjoyed because working with them, when you're walking in there, because you know this just as well as I do, um, and better than I do, is that they're very focused and that you have their undivided attention um, because of what they're used to seeing every single day. Everything is in order. And so when I get there, it's like, man, I got, I've got, so their undivided attention and I've gotten been able to have so much success with working with them. It feels so good because it makes me feel like the old lions did tryouts. Like <laughs> when guys passed the tryouts, I knew why I had an individual that was completely focused on the task at hand, but here yeah. I had a hundred, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 different um, soldiers that were in the same mindset, you know, where I, I had their complete focus so for me, it was always a fun thing. And, and Fort Polk was great. I got to do a little rappelling. Um, I was <laughs> scared to death of heights. I, I, and it's not that I, I can say I'm afraid I won't go up. I've always challenged myself. I'll get there, but my legs start shaking. I can't stop that. I don't, I don't know why <laughs> or what, but it's just something I can't stop. And I, felt, I kept telling myself, I'm going to go. I'm, I don't care. I'm going to break it. I'm going to do it. And when I got there, I told them I would do it. And I remember they started me out on the small wall. And then, of course, I got the big wall, but they instead of having me go down the wall, they had me go down the open wall where there was no wall. Um, so I ended up going from the small wall to just no wall. And um, I ended up getting to go off it. The first time I went off of it, I was so it was like that adrenaline rush. We were talking about fighting. I was like, I found it. I went to it again. But it's for me, it's um, I am so honored to be able to. Um, have the military reach out to me and want and be able to allow me to come in and work with them that that nobody gets to do that I mean that's not an easy thing to do so I'm very honored that I'm able to do that now I, I think that that is one of the greatest things about America that we can merge expertises to go ahead and create a better American citizenship you know and help each other out based on what we do on a daily basis and what we're good at uh, one of the things that you tend to do with the with the troops is something called the shamrock drill. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it, what it is is it's set up to challenge uh, each individual um, on their willpower. It's not set up for people to make it easily. And so um, when 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 I go there, as this last time at Fort Polk, I was really impressed because I put them through you know 500 squats. Um, hundreds of sit-ups, uh, hundreds of push-ups, and uh, I say 25. After they did all that, they did 25 pull-ups, um, and because we didn't have enough time to really get go longer, because um, you know they're on this time frame, so you only get so much time for that PT. But in that time frame, man, it was like I I thought there would maybe 50-50 would would get past the squats. That was the first thing we did. Man. And it was like 90% of them passed the squats. I was like, okay, 
you know, uh, I've never had that happen before. So it was impressive. I was, it was a very impressive time there. Yeah, and that, you know, a lot of them have been training for the new Army combat fitness test, so they, they, they're, they're pretty tuned up. But uh, I'm, I'm curious if you reached out to them 24 to 36 hours later when the lactic acid actually settled, you know, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they were not mobile at that, uh, at that point. So, uh, Ken, you know, as, as you get to travel and meet more military people, what advice will you give them uh, about dealing with adversity and picking themselves up? Yeah, I mean, I, and you're talking about to the military? Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, these guys have already committed, right? And, and have done something that not too many people can do. Um, you know, there's very few people that have that warrior spirit and being able to put themselves in that position uh, every single day, having to be able to take orders and be able to get things done in a timely manner. Um, that's a change. That's a big change of life. And I think it's for the good. I just really love what uh, these individuals do when they make that commitment um, and they're being taught really good things. And so all I can say is that, uh, you know, especially when you're in the military, man, just make sure when you make that commitment that you, you finish the commitment because uh, that's something that's going to, it's going to be a part of you for the rest of your life. No, and, and something that is very important for every single one of them to hear, Ken. And I will tell you that I will, I, I will always love and respect every single one of them, regardless of service in my current position, just because I appreciate everything that they do. Not only because I've been doing it alongside with them, just because I can see the work that is coming ahead. And make no mistake that in the middle of everything that we have going on, the Department of Defense number one priority is fighting wars, and we'll be ready to go ahead and get after the next one. So, Ken, uh, as we draw to an end over here, I would like to give you an opportunity to go ahead and provide any closing comments you may have. Yeah, I just want to say I appreciated the um, opportunities I've had over the long years of working with the military. It's been an honor uh, and a privilege for me to be involved in that. I look forward to the future and doing more endeavors like that. It's something that's high on my priority list that, uh, to get more involved. Um, and also, too, to un uh, help them uh, understand that I'm starting a league called Valor BK. And I came up with that name because of the military, because of the work I do for the military, because of the respect that I have for the military. Uh, I came up with that name because it's a great name. Uh, and I think it speaks loudly of what the military does for us each and every day. But at the same time, during these events, um, we're also going to honor um, different soldiers uh, by um, having an empty chair, um, several empty chairs that would have each one of those fallen soldiers' names on it, and that um, we're going to do, hopefully be able to raise money for um, those soldiers' families while we do these events. So it's something we're looking forward to when we get Valor going again. Well, again, you know, true testament of your character and uh, the way that you have taken your life coming from a really bad situation to being a, an upstanding citizen. And I tell you, Ken, man, this world needs a new league of extraordinary gentlemen, and you, sir, are one of them. So I want to thank you on behalf of the 2.4 million military members currently serving today for everything that you have done and continue to do, not only for us, but for the American public. Now, before I let you go, I just wanted to tell you a couple of things here. So number one is if we get the opportunity, the repelling stuff, we're going to throw you out of, out of an aircraft at some point, if you're willing to do that. That will be a lot more fun. It's kind of like a dog sticking their head outside of the windshield of a car, you know. Right, but right. Uh, And the other thing that I will tell you is that you're about the only man in this world that I will not give crap about wearing tights. So um, <laughs> you make them look good, brother. But uh, also, you know, we have a lot of people that may be interested in learning more about all of the great things that you're doing. How can they reach you? What are your social media platforms and how can they reach out to you, Ken? Yeah, we have uh, my platform is KenShamrock.com. It has all my social media platforms on there. Also, too, if you're um, interested in the Valor, Bare Knuckle organization, you can go to ValorBK.com. We have all our upcoming events and all of our um, newsletters and stuff on there. So check that out. All right, outstanding. Well, 
Thank you to all the senior enlisted leaders for your collaboration and efforts within your services. And also, most of all, thanks to our current and future enlisted leaders who are out there sweating it out and accomplishing the mission right now at this very moment as we draw down in Afghanistan and abroad. If you would like to know more, please check us out on the SEAC Facebook, our Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages. This has been your Bottom Line Up Front podcast. Thank you very much and see you next time.